0: City that they're building there where it's a line. Have you seen, heard this? That it's a straight, this like narrow line of like a mile wide and it's just like, it's anyway, it's kind of crazy. My point is that in our day and in ancient times where the Bible was written, you had impressive buildings. So much so that a building came to define a city. So you would recognize a city by its building. Here's an example. Okay. If you want to hit the... What city is that? Uh, Sydney. Paris. Paris. Let's see if you know your Canadian ones. Hey, no, shh. (laughs) Okay, which city is this? It's Winnipeg. (laughs) Okay. What about this one? Calgary. Calgary. What about this one? Okay. How do you know... Oh yeah I should have uh, I should have thought of that okay my point is this how do you know that these are those cities? Those buildings are distinct enough where you remember them that are uh, that they are associated with the city. My point is this is that a great building, kind of comes and learns how to define a city. You recognize a city by the building. And that was true in the ancient day as well. Except in the ancient days, in the time of the Bible that it was being written, it wasn't that a building defined a city so much, but great buildings defined faith in the ancient days. Particularly if I told you about the riot in Ephesus, there is a great god there. I, sh- I shouldn't say she's great, but the, she was a, f- a well-known god, the god of Artemis, and she had a building. Does anyone remember what the building was called? It was one of the seven wonders of the world. Okay, or you have the uh, great Acropolis of ancient Rome, or if I showed you this picture, what faith is associated with that? Judaism. Judaism. Okay, my point is is that buildings in the ancient world used to define great faiths. The pyramids, Athens, the Parthenon, the the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, and that was true of the Jews as well. And I don't know if you realize uh, the exact, I don't know if you realize this, but what you're looking at right now is a great feat of engineering. The stones used for the temple this temple were 46 feet long, and the stones, get this, weighed over 415 tons. Compare that to the stones used for the pyramids that just weigh in at 15 tons. So if you remember in Matthew 24, the disciples are walking along with Jesus towards the end of Jesus. Jesus is going to the cross, right? It's that kind of Passion Week. And the disciples look at the temple, and what do they say about the temple? They were saying, look at how massive these stones were. They weren't kidding. And we know that the temple burned around 70 AD. But if you remember what I told you about 1 Peter, Peter is written somewhere in the early 63s. So that means that the temple was around during the time that this book was being written. The point I'm trying to make is that in the past or today, structures are important enough to define either the cities that they live in or the great faiths. And every god in ancient Rome, I don't know if you know this, but every god in ancient Rome had a great temple or city built to them. And I want you to imagine what it's like to be a Christian in that kind of culture. In this setting, Christians are mainly made up of slaves. Not all. There's a lot of rich Christians too. But the gospel at this point in time was making great inroads among those who were oppressed and those who were slaves. Okay? And I want you to think about how how you th- you're you're coming to faith, and you have all these great buildings that define all these gods, the Temple of Jerusalem, or all these other ones that uh, talk about these great Roman gods that don't exist. And you're a Christian. How do you speak of the greatness of your faith when Christians are slaves, they are persecuted? And as a whole, they, they don't have a great building to celebrate their great God. I mean, as a whole, they would seem like they were nothing. In a world of temples and grandeur, they would have nothing as Christians. Most Christians at this time were slaves, and they would, <clears throat> they would meet in homes for worship. Given their status as slaves, and given the fact that Christians were seen to be evil people. Remember what I told you about the background of First. Peter, is that Christians were persecuted not only because they believed in Jesus, but their convictions in Jesus were misinterpreted as being bad and evil people. They were seen as bad Roman citizens. Given all that, given that they're slaves, given that they're persecuted, given that they don't have a great temple, they just meet in homes, it would make them feel small. Wouldn't you agree? Have you ever felt small? You know, there's something that I would argue about trials and persecution. And that is, is when we are going through trials and persecution in any kind, we can feel small. And it's against that backdrop that you and I should read this text. Let me read, and so not having to read the text again, let me summarize it again is that using Jesus as the centerpiece, we are being built into a building that is something that is so much more valuable than any other building. That you are not small in the eyes of God. You're being built into something grand. A great temple called the church. Let me explain this going forward. He has made it perfectly clear that what he is talking about here is that he is not talking about a physical building, or a literal building, he's talking about a spiritual building, one that is built with living stones. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 5, and you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. These living stones have spiritual life, and each of them have a role to play in the building, but it is always in reference to the cornerstone. The spiritual house is not a physical structure, but you catch this, in case you're, if you're, you're confused about the text we read, what you're reading is a metaphor for the fellowship and unity among believers that's founded upon Jesus and his teaching. Let me say that again, okay? When it's talking about the fact that you are being built up as a building, it is a metaphor For the fellowship and unity believers have founded upon Jesus Christ and his teachings. The spiritual house represents the community of believers, the church, who are united with Christ as the cornerstone. It symbolizes the collective body of Christians, each person being built like a living stone, contributing to the building and growth of the community. Right now, God is building a temple that is far greater and far more significant than the temple in Jerusalem and any other pagan temple in the world. This one surpasses everything because it's made of living stones. That's a reference to you. This one surpasses everything, but because... Yeah, these living stones will never pass away. They will, they will. Unlike real stones, they will stand the test of time. You are being part of something far greater and wonderful than the Eiffel Tower or the Twin Towers or the Water Tower. Using Jesus as the reference point, you are being built into something greater—a spiritual house of love. Okay. Now I need to let's stop here and talk about this for a minute. Okay, growing up, my house was anything but peaceful. I think I've mentioned that to you once or twice before. And so when I was a kid, you had three places that I would spend my activities during the day. One was at home, one was at church, and one was at school. And the only place that I kind of found refuge was in church, in youth group. That the church actually became a spiritual house, somewhere where I could run into, where I could find refuge, where I could find love, where I could find security that I wouldn't have had in my home. When I got married, I remember this like uh, I remember this like it was yesterday. I remember the very first time I experienced a house of peace. So I remember this like it it was it was it was. Oh, man, it it, it was such a tangible feeling. Because in my life, the home never represented a place of police, a place of security, a place of belonging. It represented something of anger and strife and conflict. And so when I got married, we ran into our first apartment, this, like, tiny 600-square-foot apartment that it was just a dump, right? I walked into it with Liz for the very first time, and the instant that I walked into the... The door, I felt like this was a house of peace. That's what it means to have a being built into a spiritual house of peace. Last week, you remember, if we remember, we talked about the idea that in order to have a faith that survives, you need to have, you need to love each other well. We talked about that, remember? The church is built on two things primarily the love of Jesus and the love that we have for each other. I want to make sure that I, I don't run overboard, but I want to give you an example of what I mean. If you, This comes from Philippians chapter 1. And to give you context, Paul is in prison for the gospel, and he's writing to a bunch of Christians in a church called Philippi, and he says this, I thank my God every time I remember you, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work will carry it out into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. So I want you to catch this, right? He's writing to a bunch of Christians, and he's thankful for them. He remembers to pray with them. When he prays for them, he is praying for joy with them, and he feels, very, he feels very close to them, despite the fact that he is probably miles away and in prison. Well, why? Well, look at what it says in verse, uh, to, uh, verse 5. Because of your partnership and the gospel from the first day until now. That word partnership can also be translated, it comes from the word koinonia, and koinonia is where you and I get our word for fellowship. Okay. The partnership that he's talking about here is more than a business dealing. This isn't the same coordinate partnership that lets you say you're going to be on the missionary field and we're going to financially support you. It's, it's something deeper than that. Koinonia is this idea that we are sharing something, and the way it is used here is we are sharing the life of the gospel. Basically, Paul is saying that this partnership is, is that they have committed to the experiencing the gospel life together. And that's different from the way that you and I translate fellowship. We translate fellowship like this. When we talk about fellowship, we sometimes we typically mean uh that building that's attached to the church. Remember in the 1980s, every church had a fellowship building attached to it? It's not a design thing you see anymore. Or if you go further, we might describe, use the word fellowship to describe events where we sort of hang out together and show up and enjoy activities. Or we might use the word fellowship to describe tiny sandwiches and stale cookies and bad coffee. Not that the coffee here is bad. We might use fellowship to describe the time between the services when we don't really know each other most of the week, but we come together and we hang out after the service. Or we might ter- describe fellowship as that time where the pastor asks you to shake hands with someone that you don't know. And, and all the introverts of the room kind of like start their hands parting, or, uh, their hands start getting sweaty, or we talk about fellowship in terms of community groups. And I'm, but, and I'm not saying community groups are in the bad. But in the West, I want to be specific here. Not every community group is bad, but in the West, community groups really mean low commitment and only on my terms and in my commitment. Usually, we use fellowship to describe temporal moments in time where we have an activity together. And it's interesting because the way this word koinonia was understood by the earliest followers of Jesus is that it's a descriptive marker of their shared life together. It was this ongoing, persistent uh, attitude that they were intimately involved daily in one another's lives that they would describe, it would be like describing something like they were being stubbornly committed to each other. That they loved Jesus and they were being built into a house that would be far greater than anything else. Based on the idea of koinonia, fellowship of the gospel. I want to make three quick reference points to this and, and then uh, we'll go home. The first is is that Jesus is the reference point for what is being built upon. It says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men but in the sight of god a chosen and precious uh, you yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god i want for it stands in scripture i am laying in zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame in our day we would might have a difficulty with that image because modern buildings don't have cornerstones. They have a foundation. And in the ancient world, many buildings, especially the big and massive ones, were made made up of stones taken from the quarry. And the cornerstone was always the first stone to be laid in a structure. And the stone was crucial to everything built after it because everything would be built in relationship to that first stone. That stone was so large that it formed the foundation and it held the weight of the entire building. It would actually act as a reference point for the rest of it. If that stone was placed even fractionally off, it would impact all the other stones and, and ultimately affect the integrity of the entire building. <clears throat> Where do you think that they laid that stone? They lighted at the first corner of the building. And what do you think the all why do you think the stone was important was? It was the cornerstone. So you can see how the Holy Spirit would have led Peter to use this simple metaphor when talking about the temple of God, the church. Jesus is absolutely the reference point to everything that this church is being built up on. And if he ceases to be the focal point of the integrity of the building, the building gets way out of whack. And I don't know if you've checked your TikTok reels lately. I don't. I'm an Instagram guy, and that's where I stay. Okay. <laughs> but if the foundation of church is not Jesus Christ, then church gets really weird, doesn't it? Okay? And, I'm, and I'm talking cultish. And I've been scrolling through my Facebook feeds lately, and I've been seeing these weird kind of like videos where people have taken Jesus and laid, taken the church and put it on a different cornerstone. Have you heard of something called the Sparkle Creed? It, don't, don't, don't look it up. It's, it's, it's awful. Jesus Christ has to be the reference point that the church is built upon. Observation number two: Each believer has a role in the building. Okay, says this, verse five: You yourselves are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood. Set underlying that royal priesthood, to be an offer to offer spiritual sacrifices. Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. What is what is the role of a priest or a pastor? Anybody? Leader. What's that? Leader, Leader okay. Intercessor. Intercessor, thank you. I'll go back to that one. Yes, Tobias? Basically, like, telling them stuff. Telling them stuff. <laughs> it's, it's interesting what you think my job is. <laughs> Anyone else? Ken, what is is the role of a pastor? Shepherd. Shepherd, thank you. That's a good one. So here, here I'll give you you just a quick definition. When you talk about the idea of a priest, a priest was someone who did exactly what Cliff said. He's an intercessor. He goes between God and the people, and he offers sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. We have Jesus. Jesus fulfills that role for us. A pastor kind of has... A similar idea that's what what ken said is he's a shepherd but i would to to give it a more plain language i would say that a pastor is someone who helps the people follow jesus christ that's a a really simple definition okay and what it is saying here is that every one of you in this building who comes to the faith of jesus christ has become, later on it's going to say this, you are a holy nation and a royal priesthood. In other words, who's the pastor of manor? It's not me. <laughs> well, it is me, but the, what the scripture says is that there is a priesthood of all believers, that you and I play the function of priest and pastor to the rest of us and the rest of the world. So let me, let me talk about how this works in three, in three simple ways. First of all, I would say that you are a priest in terms of an intercessor in that you and I are to go out to the world, everyone who doesn't know Jesus, and intercede on their behalf and tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. Okay? In that way, you function as a priest. You are going between them and you're saying, I want to invite you to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Every single one of us has the a, a ability to do that. Secondly, I would say that you are a pastor or a priest in the sense that you are to help each other conform to the likeness of Jesus Christ. Okay? That is not something that I can do. For this church, for this, it should be something I could do. Let me put it that way. But for the amount of people in this room, I can't do it for every single person. Okay. In other words, if you want the church to be a place where you grow and be discipled, you've got to learn to grow and disciple each other. Okay? You, are, you have a role to play in the kingdom. And thirdly, and I'll close with this, is that the building or our lives will fall apart if we reject Jesus. Peter goes on to share what happens to those who reject Jesus in their lives who would refuse to believe in Jesus and be born again. Verse 7. But for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected, that's a reference to Jesus, has now become the cornerstone. And he is a stone that makes people stumble and the rock that makes them fall. <clears throat> they stumble because they do not obey God's word, and so they meet the fate that was planted for them. Have you ever stumbled in something in your home? Hands up. Okay, I'm going through that phase right now where James likes Lego. Okay, And I have this thing about when I get up in the middle of the night, I want to save electricity, so I just kind of walk around in the dark. And wouldn't you know it, there's Lego on the staircases. And I stumble, and I fall, and it was not good. And, uh, and, for some, and here's the thing. For some reason, he had left a box of Legos out in the hallway, and, and, I, and I learned over the years, not or not the years, of the months, not to touch the stuff or to kind of figure out where it was in the night. I memorized it. So when I got up, I would, I would walk and I would, I would miss it, but there would be nights where I'd walk and forget where it was, and then I would stumble upon it. A person can reject Jesus from their lives, but they will lo- likely stumble on it in the same way I stumbled on those Lego boxes. No matter how hard they try to avoid Jesus or go around him, they will constantly keep stumbling into jesus like i stumbled in the dark over the lego pieces why because whether you like it or not he was set by god as the cornerstone of life and there is no way to avoid his presence or his truth you will stumble time over him time In time again. Now you can see what the impact would have on those who openly and blatantly reject Jesus would be, wouldn't you? What do you think people like that would end up doing? You can only stub your toes so many times until you spend all your energy trying to get rid of the Lego blocks, right? And friends, that's what's going to happen eventually, with Jesus. People will stumble over Jesus so much that eventually they'll get fed up with him and try to remove him from life and from our culture and from society. And do we not see that happening today? So what are we to make of the text today? I would say this. It should be an encouragement for you and I today is that you aren't little, that you are much in the eyes of God. Remember, this is written to suffering Christians. So to the suffering and maligned people of God, who look out of the world and see temples and buildings of great power structures and feel themselves under the heel of men more powerful than they are, that might not think they are anything at all, and that we just kind of beat in our homes that there's just a few of us, I want to give you the encouragement this morning. Haven't you heard? You are being built into a great temple. It's the grandest building the earth has ever seen. It's the most enduring temple that will ever exist. Don't for a moment forget how significant you are in that building. You aren't little in God's eyes. You are much. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your word, and we pray uh, uh, as we go throughout the day that we may remind ourselves that we are being built part of something bigger than ourselves and grander than ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.